not the motifs in the iconography which seemed to be so important, even though he used an iconography that he had already developed of birds and stars and of women, of um, female and male genitals, but all in a very, very childlike way. But it's the way he disperses them on the surface in this uh, extremely celestial uh, manner, I would say, that is so important and which many artists, I mean, now I'm sort of jumping ahead, but many artists such as Jackson Pollock with his skeins of paint. They say, Pollock always said that he was very interested in Picasso and Miro. And um, people think that maybe part of his idea of a kind of an all-over pattern subliminally came from these works. These works were shown in New York in 1945, and so all of these artists who would become the abstract expressionists saw them. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Margit Roll is an art historian who's held positions at the Guggenheim Museum, the Pompidou, and the Museum of Modern Art. She helped put together the exhibition at Aquavella Galleries of Juan Miro's Constellations, an extraordinary set of 23 works on paper that seemed to be the apex of his work as an artist. I spoke to her briefly on the telephone from Paris about the exhibition and Miro's work. Why don't you tell me how this um, rather rare uh, exhibition of Miro's Constellations uh, portfolio came about? Well, you know, I have to be uh, extremely honest, which is it was the Aquavella's idea. And in view of the fact that I had worked a great deal on Miro, written a lot on Miro, I met Miro at, at certain points of my career, and I published an anthology of his writings. Um, they asked me if I would write a text, and I was thrilled because I do feel that these are... If I would write a text and if I would help them with some of the strategies, because the pieces are really dispersed all over the world, and, uh, well, let's say Europe and America... And there are a number of private collectors who really don't like to lend. It's very difficult to get them all together. And uh, so they asked me if I could give them some help, tell them a little bit where things were, give them some help about uh, diplomacy, and write an essay. But the idea really came from them. But I was thrilled to do it because I do feel that it's sort of decrystallization of everything that everything that is complex in Miro's art. And I would say that since I started writing on Miro, which was longer ago than I like to admit, I've always felt that he was misunderstood, that the complexity of his art and the deliberateness of his art um, was overlooked, and that these pieces really expressed that complexity in an amazing way. So... Um, so, uh, yes, tell me. Well, I was just going to ask you to unpack that for me a little bit because, you know, these are, there are 23 works on paper 
that were from, I gather, a single sort of portfolio book of, uh, of sheets. Uh, and so generally works on paper are not considered the apex of an artist's um, expression, but this particular body of work, many people, and you've just said it yourself, seems to uh, epitomize uh, Miro. And I wonder, I mean, obviously that could take a long time to explain. I wonder if you could give us a bit of a condensed uh, explanation of that. I, th I think the reason that these pieces are so concentrated and are in such a have such continuity and such a high quality is that he did them during a very unusual period of his life, which was uh, first of all the Spanish Civil War, from which he was and he was in exile in France, and then the outbreak of World War Two. Uh, when he was in Normandy, and he, as he was halfway through the series, the Germans invaded Normandy, and so he went back to Spain or went to Palma. But it was a period where uh, he was in exile. He was, as I say, first in Normandy, and then in Palma. He had he worked at night. He had no interruptions. He said he was inspired by by nature, by the sea, by the stars. And when people came to visit him in this place in Normandy, where he um, set up housekeeping, so to speak, in the summer of 1939, and stayed there until um, May of 1940, he never showed anybody what he was doing. During the day, he didn't work. He was with his wife and daughter. And so there was, and every night he worked. And so there is this extraordinary concentration. The way he started the series was that he had a block of watercolor paper, a pad, so to speak, and he dried some brushes on it with his, when he was making small paintings in oil paint when he first got to Normandy. First of all, he knew he was in exile in Normandy and that he wasn't going to stay there forever, so he decided to make small things. And the first things he made were small paintings in oil. So he dried his oil brushes on this block of paper, and he liked he dipped them in turpentine to clean them, put them on the block of paper, and he liked what he saw. And then he decided that he was going to make this series. And he started making the series uh, by doing the grounds consecutively, before he finished, he didn't do the grounds and the image and then another ground and an image. He did a series of grounds, from what we know and from what he has said. Uh, and then he would put in the black, he would draw in the underlaying drawing which with charcoal, and then he would trace it again in ink. And then he would fill in the black motifs and the color motifs with gouache. And he talks about it in this very interesting way, saying that he he just continuously filled the space up, and then at a certain point he knew it was done, and he stopped. So I think it's uh, this series of 23 washes. The first 10 were done in Normandy. Then he put them under his arm and fled to Palma. And the next 10 were done in Palma, and the last three were done at his family farm in Catalonia. And I think what is, what is interesting is that the, the palette doesn't change. You might expect 
that the time he spent in Normandy, which of course is an entirely different climate from what he was used to, and an entirely different nature, a very green nature, which was not at all what he was used to coming from Spain, you would think that those grounds would be very different from the following grounds, but that's why it's interesting that he sort of did them all continuously and he wanted them all to have a similar aura, so to speak. And then the actual um, compositions seem to sort of start out fairly sparse, uh, uh, reach a kind of crescendo of density and complexity and then begin to almost open up again, but within that um, almost grid-like uh, density of uh, the peak of them. Is is that uh, correct, or is that just sort of the, the way it appears when you walk away? No, I, I think that is correct. I think, for instance, the first four, uh, he hadn't really hit his stride, and uh, they have... Motifs, they, they also show a certain amount of anxiety and a certain amount of um, agitation, I would say. And they have titles such as um, Figures Guided by the Phosphorescent Tracks of Snails. But the figures are all, they, they're very grotesque figures. And there's a certain amount of fear uh, that, that comes through. And then at, when he gets to about the fourth or the fifth, the colors become lighter, sort of more dawn-like, if I, or aurora, uh, less, less nighttime. But I'm I'm sure he was still working at night, and it becomes kind of an all-over pattern, um, which all over the surface, as you mentioned. I mean, the earlier ones, it's a more conventional space with figures lined up across the, the bottom border of the images, and then they sort of break free in these, in these threads of, of these threaded drawings, so to speak, which uh, with all these little motifs attached to them. It, I mean, it's very, very, a very unusual space, and um, which, which, I mean, was an incredible breakthrough in a sense. And it's not so that it's not the it's not the motifs in the iconography which seem to be so important, even though he used an iconography that he had already developed of birds and stars and of women of um, female and male genitals, but all in a very very childlike way. But it's the way he disperses them on the surface in this uh, extremely celestial. Uh, manner, I would say, that is so important, and which many artists, I mean, now I'm sort of jumping ahead, but many artists, such as Jackson Pollock, with his schemes of paint, they say, Pollock always said that he was very interested in Picasso and Miro, and um, people think that maybe part of his idea of a kind of an all-over pattern subliminally came from these works. These works were shown in New York in 1945, and so all of these artists who would become the abstract expressionists saw them. You mentioned the um, the, the constellation-like uh, uh, structure. There's also a number of both tiny figures who are drawn as, you know, uh, unitary figures, but also figures that seem to emerge 
through the constellation of various different uh, elements uh, uh, within the construction, and and in the more complex ones, it, uh, often you're you're drawn looking from one thing, and then seeing as you pull back slightly, another uh, element gets uh, pulled in to complete the composition, uh, and all. Is that sort of what the the title constellations refers to, or is it just simply this all over of uh, uh, elements? Well, you know. Um... When I was writing the essay for the catalog, and I was looking at them extremely closely, uh, I realized, I, I mean, I've been looking at them for, for 40 years, but I realized really that there was this linear web uh, which represents a person or a grotesque person or a grotesque bird or something, which underlies all the motifs, and the motifs are sort of hung or beaded onto it. And I realize that that is the idea of the constellation. But And sometimes you have to strain to see what these images are, these very fine lines. And sometimes it's these very fine linear silhouettes which give the title to the work, so they do give you a clue. Um, Nero never called them constellations. He only called one. He only called one a constellation, and it was actually the the surrealist, the surrealist André Breton, who called them, who named them constellations in 1957, when uh, Pierre Matisse decided to do a portfolio of reproductions, and um, and. Breton wrote a very beautiful piece about it and called them the constellations for the first time. But I mean, I think I think subconsciously this is what Miro was thinking about, particularly since he says the night music and the stars were my inspiration. Um, I, it seems quite clear. Well, they they certainly have that haunting quality, the the like true constellations where you you need to assemble the figure, uh, and then once you do, uh, it's sort of indelibly uh, uh, fixed in your mind. Yes, the the Im images have that effect. You you're hunting through them, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, something appears, and uh, uh, out of those mass of different elements, and uh, every time you look at it again, subsequently. Uh, uh, you'll you'll see that I guess until you you identify a different constellation uh, uh, of elements. But it is true uh, that you don't it. really see the web figure immediately, as you say. You see the sparks, and that's just the same impression you get when you look at constellations in the sky. You try and put them in relation to each other, and all of a sudden you see a figure. Um, well, here it doesn't function exactly in the same way, but uh, if you follow a line around, suddenly suddenly a figure appears to you and you say, ah, that's the constellation. I don't know. I mean, I, everybody probably reacts differently. But there's something, there's something else which is very interesting about this, is that for Miro, he found that the, the paper, so to speak, was too tame in a sense. It was too smooth, so he wet the paper and rubbed it to give it a kind of a grain, to give it a texture. And I think that plays also in the kind of, 
of lighting, this kind of highlighting and shadow that you get in the paper, uh, and this kind of dappled, dappled surface, which is very unusual for for Miro. Uh, I mean, he was a he was a master of materials and of inventing new materials and. That too is something which is rather amazing in these drawings. They're so small, and yet he said that he considered them as important as fresco paintings. And of course, he was very interested in Romanesque frescoes, having seen them all his childhood. So, I mean, this too—it's uh, the in, the interest he had in folk art and in Romanesque frescoes and things like that. He considered that these were all universal expressions and not just uh, an expression expressions of they were expressions of nature or of universal man as opposed to a single artist and I think that you you feel this kind of sublimation of his persona in these that's sort of pretentious but (laughs) in these drawings no, there's, you know, it's funny that you, you talk about them being frescoes because those grounds, uh, when you look at them, they, they feel like um, walls. You know, they, they've got swirls uh, and modeling uh, and uh, colors that are both, you know, uh, uh, feel like a, a rough stone wall of some sort, but it's clearly a, a sort of created uh, em- environment and and there's almost something like a cave painting like in in looking at them uh which is not a, a fresco obviously but it's still it, it gives it this uh, a sense of being on stone uh and uh, uh quite permanent when it's a, a work on paper no but it's interesting too when you look at the uh pieces in the flesh is in view of the fact that he dampens the paper and worked on it, a lot of the papers are sort of rippled or warped because they were wet when he was working on them. And, uh, I mean, that gives them a very, I don't know, a very nice homemade texture, right? It, they're not they're not slick at all. They, they have really, well, the handmade, uh, what can I say? What they, I just said. Yeah, they, 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 they have a quality that that makes them uh, uh, seem both rough and finished at the same time. Uh, 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 uh-huh. and, and the layering. I mean, you know, it, it's funny. The wall text for the show. Uh, uh, reinforces that the grounds were so important that I gather in his correspondence with Matisse, he he agreed that, you know, getting the ground right was, was what launched all, all of this. And it, sort Absolutely. Of changed, it changes the way you, you look at them because normally you don't pay that much attention to the ground. But having walked in and read that, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, preface telling you how important the ground is you you start from the back with these works uh in, mm-hmm. in a way that you might not normally if you didn't know uh that about the the uh composition and and their construction um i wanted to ask you a question about matisse uh and his relationship because he he makes these 23 works. He wraps all but one of them up and mails them off to Matisse, who I am assuming is is selling them for him to, you know, uh, uh, keep him uh, going through the occupation and exile. 
uh, and all this. I, he keeps one for his wife, correct? Yes. Right. So. Well, you know that that, that what, the way you're telling the story that's a very fast forward, if I may say so. Pl- please, because, please. Because uh, <laughs> uh, he he finished some, and uh, there was. Um, he finished them in September 1941, and there was really no way of getting them to uh, the United States. He didn't wrap them up and take them to the post office. There was this man, uh, Matisse talked to, first of all, there is this wonderful story that Matisse told me himself, uh, which is that uh, Miro wrote to him and said, I'm working on something which is one of the most important series of anything I will ha- ever have done. And he said they are paintings and they measure 38 by 46. And um, so Matisse thought they were paintings and he thought they measured 38 by 46 inches, when in fact they measured 38 by 46 centimeters, which is 15 by 18 inches. But never mind. So um, Matisse wants to have them sent to the United States, but he doesn't know how to go about it. This is 1941. And he talks to people at the Museum of Modern Art, and the Museum of Modern Art says, we have a, we have a courier who is a Brazilian, a Brazilian diplomat, and he could go to Spain, pick them up, and take them out via Lisbon. So this is what happens. The courier, whose name is Duarte, goes to uh, Spain, I guess to Palma or to Catalonia, picks up the pieces, and through Lisbon takes them to Philadelphia and then to New York. And in the meantime, since nothing had been selling during the war, even Pierre Matisse was in bad straits, Matisse made an arrangement with some trustees from MoMA that a number of them would buy these paintings when they arrived. So the paintings arrived, and the people at MoMA said, yes, well, we've done this favor for you. We would like them to be shown at MoMA. And, and Pierre Matisse said, no, 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 they're going to be shown in, uh, in my gallery. So the pieces arrived, and everybody was totally shocked because they were so small and they were on paper. And, I mean, he not only said they were paintings, he said they were canvases in a letter that he wrote to Matisse uh, Miro. So people say to me, well, I mean, Matisse was French, so why did he think that 38 by 46 was uh, inches? Why didn't he completely understand that they were centimeters? But Pierre Matisse had been living in the United States for, for 10 years, and he was totally Americanized. I mean, I'm saying this in a sort of a, I don't know, I'm saying it like as though I know everything, but I knew Pierre Matisse quite well, and he did tell me the story, so uh, there is truth to it. Anyway, they everybody was shocked to find out that there were these tiny little drawings, and everybody was absolutely thrilled at the same time. And they were supposed to be sold for $500 a piece, and uh, which I suppose was a certain sum in those days, yes. and they and Pierre Matisse was very proud. He told me he managed to sell them for seven hundred, and uh, he probably didn't sell them all right away. And then they had the exhibition, and the exhibition had uh, rave reports. 
Um, but to come back to what you were saying, of course, Nero did need the money, but also Pierre Matisse needed the money. Everybody, during the war, the art market had apparently relatively dried up. Well, and there was nothing coming in from Europe. So these were the first things to be shown. Everybody made a big thing about the fact that these were the first things to be seen coming from a great artist in Europe. So where I was going with that is I was curious to know. So he's 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 got a pad of 23 sheets of paper. He's exhausted uh, that. He's moved on and he's... Well, I think that, you know, I think the, the pad may have had 40 sheets of paper. He, <laughs> I think it just at a certain point he decided to stop. Uh, that's I, that's really my question. Does he just sort of it runs its course? He's sort of done everything he can, and and as we just I think so, I think so. Because you can see an arc in these twenty three works. It's not like he's just sort of pounding them out. They 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 are reaching a point, and then they're sort of working their way out of it. And he, what did he go on to do next? Do you know? Well, I think he decided that he wanted to do larger. He wanted to do larger paintings. So he went back to painting. He wanted to go back to doing paintings. And and there's a there's an interesting kind of frequency when I was went through the show. You sort of tried to pay attention. There's a couple of like there are a couple of months where two or three are done, and then they they you know summer they they get more sparse. Then there's a couple of points where it uh, they they increase uh, in frequency. It's all about eighteen months that these uh, are done in. Uh, correct, you know, a, a year, a year and a half. Well, he uh, always said that it took him almost a month to do one, and I think that uh, you know, at times he could have worked on two at the same time, but they sort of overlapped, but were not absolutely simultaneously simultaneous. And um, he, he he said that uh, that it took him about a month to do each one. Now, whether or not we, I, I sort of figured it out that it was approximately that. But if you're saying 18 months and there are 23 of them, but but whatever, right? Yeah, I, I just more, more was, it's just, uh, because it's such a unitary body of work and what's so great about the show is seeing them all together. He No, actually, you know, he started them in August. Um, am I correct? Uh, oh, no, the first one is January 1940. And, and uh, the last one is, is September 1941, so it is like uh, 18 months, as you say. But but what I think, what I think is that um, the first one, which is dated January 21st, 1940, I think that he began it. He began working on the grounds and everything of it way before then, and maybe on the grounds of several works at the same time. Um, and then it was when he completed the imagery that he signed it and thought it was done. You see what I mean? Yes. No, that makes mo the the most sense. And then and, that, and your your what you said earlier about the the couple of times where there's like uh, a couple in a month, it would make more sense that he's working uh, on more than one work uh, yeah. at the same yeah. time. Uh, 
and 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 as I said, there's it's less about the time. One one presumes that you know there's a lot going on uh, uh, in his world at this time. That uh, there there are numerous reasons that things wouldn't go on some sort of a regular uh, schedule. Because, because, for instance, in the beginning there is one which is dated February twelfth, nineteen forty, and another which is. Uh, done February fifteenth, nineteen forty, but we know he didn't do it in three days. Um, that, that's he, a, that's exactly what I'm referring to. There's a couple of months. Yeah, that he brought it to culmination, so to speak, uh, in in those days. Have these been shown together before? Yes, I, yes. I know they have, but but not for quite a while. No, uh, the last time they were shown all together was actually at the centennial celebration of Nero's birth, which was in 1993 at MoMA. And it was considered a real challenge to get them all together, but because it was MoMA, um, they did. Well, talk to me about the challenge. Is it the challenge that they're just so precious to their... Uh, owners that they really don't want to let them out? Yes, the owner, well, you will note that the exhibition is a very, it's a very short run because, you know, works on paper are not supposed to be exposed to sunlight more than a certain amount of time. So the ones in museums, people really don't like to lend them. I mean, you also notice probably that they're very, they seem very crisp, right? They don't seem faded at all yes. because uh, people have taken such good care of them, but also because I guess the materials, um, it, Nero used, uh, well, he didn't always use very good materials, uh, but in this particular case, I guess that oil wash, which is what the grounds are, is fairly solid, and then the gouache laid over it, it seems to have really adhered and seems to have kept its freshness. But they, they are, first of all, they're very rare. Um, they're sort of these jewels, right, which are very rare. There are no other drawings in his career which, which are as complete, so to speak, as, as works of art. And... Um, the ones that belong to private collectors, they have sort of a, a fetish quality, and some of them belong to families who have owned them for many, many years. I don't know if any of them belong to uh, the descendants of the original buyers, but um, so people really feel very strongly about not wanting to let them out. And what the Aquavella Gallery was told by one or two lenders was that if they didn't have the whole set, these people would not lend. So, you know, it's a question of, uh, it's a, like a poker game. You have to really, you really have to really get them, get them all or everything will collapse. <laughs> Well, it's it, it's what makes the show work, uh, right? I mean, if you had yeah, 22, exactly, exactly twenty two of them wouldn't be quite the same, and and it really no, is it's it, true. It's it is so extraordinary to be able to walk through. I, I mean, the show itself is quite overwhelming. Uh, it's the kind one of the. But you know, there is, there is a story, and I think I should probably say this because there is a story that they were probably twenty four originally. 
um, the 23rd one he gave to his wife, so it did not come to New York. It was not shown at uh, Pierre Matisse. And there was a 24th one, which was given away, and no one has ever known to whom. It was very mysterious, and it has never reappeared, reappeared again. And, and, I mean, one of the stories was that he gave it to a friend who gave it to his mistress, and there are, there's a sort of a secret. But I'm not sure that this is really true, because for things like this, if there was another one somewhere, I think it would have come out of the woodwork somehow. It's almost impossible First of all, you have the basis of a great historical novel right there in that little uh, pricey. Uh, so mm. if you if you don't want to write it, someone should uh, uh, because well, no, I mean people have been saying this that there was a twenty fourth one. Uh, they've been saying it, but for uh, years and years and years. But uh, and at one point, I thought there was a confusion, and I'm still not sure that there was a confusion with the one that Nero gave to his wife, that there were only 23, but only 22 shown at Piermatis, because this idea that there is one that was given away to a mysterious figure, um, uh, it's only brought up now and then, but somebody brought it up to me at the opening, uh, saying, and the last one, we will never know where it is, but I don't know. I, I, I really... Given the immense value, uh, uh, someone gave me a price of one that changed hands in all, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and, and considering its size and that it's a work on pa paper, it was a, a, it was a very healthy sum. And that was before the kinds of run up in art prices that we've seen over the la last decade. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mm -hmm. I am thinking there is a, there is a great incentive for that missing 24th one to either uh, uh, emerge or to someone uh, to claim that they've uh, uh, found it. So uh, I agree. You would think that at some point it, it would show itself. Yes, it would. So maybe, uh, maybe it's fictitious and maybe it isn't, but I just thought for the record we can bring it up. Is it is but in 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 either his day book or the correspondence does is it clear that there were twenty four or is this just one of those no, easy things? No, it's, absolutely not, absolutely not. So it's hard to pin down the the veracity. It is. Of it is. Yes. It's one of those those few shows that you was walk out of and think, uh, when am I going to come back? Uh, because you can't take it all in at once, uh, and it certainly seems worth uh, returning to again and again. Well, um, I think, I mean, I didn't count them, but I think about half of these works are in private collections, so you really should come back again and again because you're not going to see them again very often. And actually, even the ones in museums are not shown very often because everybody is very protective of them remaining fresh and crisp. So, I mean, I think that this, I'm not going to say it's a once in a lifetime, but the fact is that when it was shown, when they were shown in the Museum of Modern Art exhibition, it was wonderful. It was breathtaking. But you were all, by the time you got to them, you had already been through rooms and rooms of paintings and you were going to go on to rooms and rooms of paintings. So it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same experience. 
it was a pause, and it was a very beautiful pause. But but here, uh, you walk into the room fresh, and uh, you come onto these things uh, totally well prepared or unprepared. But they are going to be the subject of your focus, where. Nothing else has distracted you, neither before nor after, and I think that's what's so wonderful about this exhibition. Um, yeah, me too. I, I, you, you may not want to say it, but I will say it. It, it certainly seems like a once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity and worth making every effort to see it uh, as many times as possible. And, uh, Margit, I should add, uh, I, thank you for putting it together. It really uh, is an extraordinary experience. Well, Aquavella put it together. Please, please, don't, uh, don't give me too much uh, credit. We'll, we'll but I was very happy to do anything I could to help. We'll still give you some. Thank you so much for okay. taking the time to explain it. Okay, okay. It was nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com 